Julie Ryan, noted psychic and medical intuitive, is ready to answer your personal questions, even those you never knew you could ask. For more than 25 years, as she developed and refined her intuitive skills, Julie used her knowledge as a successful inventor and businesswoman to help others. Now, she wants to help you to grow, heal, and get the answers you've been longing to hear. Do you have a question for someone who's transitioned? Do you have a medical issue? What about your pet's health or behavior? Perhaps you have a loved one who's close to death and you'd like to know what's happening. Are you on the path to fulfill your life's purpose? No matter where you are in the world, take a journey to the other side and ask Julie Ryan. Hi everybody, welcome to the Ask Julie Ryan Show. I'm so delighted you could join us today because we have Dr. Raymond Moody. What a score. So thrilled to have you, Raymond. Thank you for taking the time oh, to Julie, join us. You know, that goes right back to you. I'm just so delighted by this. And I'm just, uh, you know, honored that you'd want to talk with me. So thank you Absolutely. so much. You're the godfather of NDEs. So tell everybody who has been living under a rock and doesn't know what an NDE is, please tell them what an NDE is and then also what an SDE is, please. Yes, right. Well, it is a remarkably, you know, common occurrence these days that people get resuscitated from close calls with death. And back in the 60s and 70s, with the advent of this cardiopulmonary resuscitation, it was happening all over the place. Well, in 1962 at UVA as a, as a philosophy student, I found out about these near-death experiences by reading of about them in Plato. Then, three years later, I heard in Charlottesville an actual human being who had had such an experience Dr. George Ritchie, who's a professor of psychiatry. Then I went on and got my PhD in philosophy, and I began to hear these, uh, these stories from my students at, at East Carolina University. I was a philosophy professor. Then from my colleagues. Then I went to medical school in 1972, and I, beginning in 65, I have interviewed literally thousands of people who came up to the brink of death and were resuscitated and had remarkably similar experiences. And basically, what they say is not everybody has every element of it. Some people just have two or three things. Some have a 15 things, depending on how close they got to death. But in a very typical experience, people will say that when their heart stops beating, they say they hear the doctor say something like, oh my God, she's dead, or we've lost her, or words to that effect. But from their point of view, they say it's not like going to sleep. It's like they say waking up. And they said suddenly they come out of their body. They can see the whole scene from above. They can understand not by hearing it auditorially, but by knowing the thoughts of the doctors and nurses down below. But when they try to communicate in turn, nobody can see them. Nobody can hear them. They become aware of a passageway of some sort. They call it a tunnel or a hallway. And they go through this tunnel and they come out in the other side into an incredibly brilliant and warm and loving light. And I have talked with thousands of people all over the world, including incredibly brilliant people with multiple doctoral degrees and so on. No matter how brilliant they are, they say, I just can't describe it to you. There are no words. 
but they end up in this complete feeling of comfort, love, peace, and joy in this bright light. They say that relatives or friends of theirs who've already died seem to be there in spirit form, they say, to meet them. At some point, everything else kind of disappears. Time stands still, and they see everything they've ever done displayed around them instantly in a panorama. They see you see everything you've ever done. But when you see it, you don't just see it from the perspective that you had when you did it but you are empathically embedded in the consciousness of those with whom you've interacted. So if you see yourself yourself so, um, doing something mean to somebody, which I wouldn't understand that, I've never, no, I'm just kidding, which we all have, right? They say that then you feel directly and empathically the hurt that you brought about in somebody else's life, or if you see a doing yourself doing something good and nice to somebody, you feel the good feeling. This is often, review often takes place in the company of a being of sheer light that people say that it just complete compassion. Some say Christ, some say God, some say an angel, but whoever they say this being knows everything about you and that there's this kind of discussion. It doesn't play take place in auditory words, but thoughts. And people say that, uh, George Ritchie said, he said he immediately became aware of what this being was interested in, he said, was how I had learned to love. That's what everybody says. It's all about love. Now, at a certain point, obviously, all the ones I've talked to have to come back. Some people say, I had no idea how I got back. I was over there and Zen Zap. I was back in the hospital room with no sense of transition. Others say that they were told you have to go back. It's not your time to die yet. And a, yet another group said that they're given a choice, that they can either return to the life they've been leading or, or um, uh, uh, to go on with the experience they're having then. Obviously, all the ones I've talked to chose to come back here. But though I, all of them say is that they didn't chose to come, choose to come back for themselves. They said it's most typically it's because they had young children left to raise. Now, when they get back, it's really interesting because people, you know, it's it's a transformation. They have no more fear of death because, you know, from their point of view, this was the afterlife they went to, and it it brings about a commitment to, you know, pursue the. Loving others. It, it. By the way, it doesn't make it any easier. My, my. This wonderful man, George Ritchie, who's I just the greatest person I ever knew. He's a professor of psychiatry at UVA, and he said to me one time, he said, Raymond, this experience makes your humanity even more of a burden in a way. And what he was getting at is that even after you see this vision of love, it's very difficult to put it into practice in this world. But that is what we call a near-death experience. Now, as everybody knows, the, the, this has been debated since remote antiquity. This, Plato knew all about this. And Democritus, who was the Greek philosopher about the same time, who had figured out that there were atoms and that, that reality is made up of atoms. Well, that Plato and Democritus had this debate, which we still have today. 
Plato took this as an indicator of an afterlife. Yeah, this is real. Democritus, the atomist, said, well, these people look dead, but even, you know, even after they look dead, there's this biological activity going on in the body, and, and that's what causes this near-death experience. Flash forward 2,300 years, we haven't moved an inch. This is the same thing now, right? Some people say, oh, this is, you know, life after death. Oh, others, oxygen deprivation to the brain, right? Well, let me put it this way. It's not oxygen deprivation to the brain. People have to hold on to that way of arguing about it because that gives us some kind of safety. But in reality, it's totally displaced from from the actual situation because it is also a very common experience that bystanders at the death of someone else who are not themselves ill or injured will have these same experiences simultaneously with the death of a loved one. Like the people at the bedside will say, as grandma died, I myself left my body. I went up toward this light part way toward us. I saw her relatives and friends who had died coming to meet her. Then I came back to my body and, and you know, my, my grandma was dead. Or uh, people say that the room fills with light. Um, and um, uh, people say that they see apparitions of the dying person's deceased loved ones coming into the room as though to take them away and get this. Julie, this is the most anxiety-provoking thing, this next thing, about that I I know about this. And that is that it's also, I mean, there are plenty of cases of people at the bedside of somebody else who died, that as the person was dying, the, the person standing around empathically co-lived their dying life review. And this is shocking to me because I'm hoping to get myself recused from my own life review, much less the idea that there could be like a spectator there, like pass the popcorn, right? But no, it's, it's like, first of all, I always assume that this had to be somebody who was intimate with the person, right? Who was dynamic. But oh, oh, then some years ago, Cheryl and I got a communication from a doctor who was called to the ER to resuscitate a patient he had never laid eyes on. And as this guy was dying, the doctor said, there's his whole, this man's whole life was arrayed around him. And um, so, you know, whatever, this is not oxygen deprivation to the brain because the same experience identically is reported by the people who are standing around who are not ill or injured. But... This is going to be a hard thing to people to swallow. I think I've been talking about these shared death experiences for decades, but it's like people don't want to hear it, right? I think maybe because of two things. One is I think that um, a near-death experience is something that happens to somebody else, right? This other guy almost died in it, and that you can kind of distance from it. But if somebody is the idea that you might, you people can more easily imagine it being there at the death of someone else, and then they might have this. So it's a hard thing for people to swallow, but it occurs. And so, you know, something very important is going on here. It doesn't follow from the fact 
that these experiences are not oxygen deprivation to the brain, that therefore they are life after death. There's, there's work yet to be done, but I think that we are on the verge of major, you know, you know, breakthroughs in the rational investigation of this uh, question of life after death. And I say that, by the way, being both a, I'm, I'm very, very, you know, I'm just, I'm a great lover of Western philosophy. I had a PhD in philosophy and I taught philosophy and it's still a very big part of me. And I'm also a psychiatrist, medical doctor, psychiatrist. I was a forensic psychiatrist working with the max in a maximum security unit with mostly psychotic killers who were insane and so on. But uh, throughout this, um, this long career, I've been wrestling with these things. I've talked to thousands and thousands of people who had near-death experiences or, or the shared death experiences at the death of someone else. Well, it's fascinating to me, too, and I, I believe that my role, actually, I was told it by my main spirit guide, who's a dead pope, Clement VI, who was I'll in be. office during the Black Plague when two-thirds oh, wow. of Europe died, and he's best known for his prayers for the dying and his prayers for the dead. And probably about 10 years ago, he said, you need to teach the world what happens when somebody dies because everybody's so afraid. Yeah. And And similarly to what you've found out from all of those people with whom you've spoken, your interviewees, is what I see and have coined the 12 phases of transition, which is how angels and the spirits of deceased loved ones and the spirits of deceased pets surround the person as they're dying. And the configuration changes as they get closer and closer to death. Interestingly enough, too, Raymond, I love it when science catches up with woo-woo because woo-woo has yeah. been around since the beginning of time. And Dr. Chris Kerr, are you familiar with him? He's oh, an MD, I know. PhD. Yeah, oh, my God. What a great guy. Yeah. 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 You know, university-based research that he's conducted shows that close to 90% of people see the spirits of deceased loved ones and yeah. pets as they're getting close to death. You've done university-based research. He has, and so have I, for my surgical device inventions. And that is no easy feat to do that, yeah. to get through the, you know, the IRBs. That's the review board that has to approve everything at the university yeah. level before you can start the study and all of that. The other thing that's interesting, two other correlations, one, in, well, really three, one is what I perceive, Raymond, is the spirit exits through the top of the head. And That's you talk about the people with whom you've interviewed, they're saying they're like they're looking down. Their spirit is up above the head. Number one. Number two, I see a vortex form as the person's getting closer and closer to death and the spirit goes through the vortex. Yeah, yeah. I, which yeah. is the tunnel that they talk about. And then, and then the brilliant white light, that's what the pearly gates look like to me. And it, it's a plasma wall as I perceive it. And I had a, a guest on recently named Tom Palladino, who's a scalar energy expert and researcher. Mm -hmm. And he mm -hmm. said, all spirit stuff's plasma energy. He said, it's not electromagnetic, it's plasma. And I said, that's a first time anybody said that to me because I've always seen heaven as this plasma wall. And once we go through it, 
all the deceased loved ones and pets are there. And I mm. even do this exercise and teach it called the walk to heaven, Raymond, for patients who are really afraid to die. You know, they're just scared to death, literally scared to death to die. And so wow. we do a dress rehearsal with them and it, it, you know, helps satisfy. So a lot of, a lot of things are correlating there and resonating, I think. Your your book, Life After Life, which was 1975, if I'm not mistaken, correct? Okay. It it seemed to be a catalyst to expand people's beliefs in an afterlife, in an NDE. When you look back on that time, I was a sophomore in high school that year. What do you think was the climate that allowed the information to begin to seep back in. Because like you, I believe people have known this stuff since the beginning of time. And as we've become more well-educated, perhaps, and more proof-based, we lost track of that. And then you reintroduced it. You were part of the wave to reintroduce it in the mid-70s. What do you think was happening during that time in history that allowed that? Well, um, I just feel pretty convinced that the the determinant there were two determinative factors on that mainly. One being the fact with the advent of the techniques of CPR that you would know a lot more about than I do, back in the sixties and seventies, suddenly something that had always occurred it was written by about by ancient Greek philosophers, but was extraordinarily rare suddenly became common. And then the second factor was that I had been interested in this phenomenon since 1962 when I found out about it in reading Plato. And then I realized that what was happening was that there were just a lot of them. When I was a professor at East Carolina, they used to ask me to go to these um, civic clubs because they found out this professor at the university was just studying these, you know, and so I would go to the civic clubs at that time. It was an all male institution, you know, and it was like the nowadays, the last time I went to a civic club, there were women there too, but the now then it was all men like the movers and shakers and the community. And I, and I never went to a civic club that, you know, where somebody at least went one of them, seven people, seven men, Came back, Dr. Moody, it's always the same thing. Dr. Moody, I've never told anybody this, but that happened to me. And people were relieved to hear that, you know, something they thought was, it was, they, it was very meaningful to them, but that they had assumed that they were the only ones, that it was very comforting that it um, was turned out to be a very common thing. And so um, the fact that I was a philosophy professor, I knew what not to say. Yeah, I think I can easily imagine that somebody who was more flighty than I am might say, oh, proof of life after death. And, I, and you know, that would just have sensationalized it and that would have ruined it. But I said at the very beginning, look, this is not proof of life after death. For, but I said that, you know, it's something very significant and and that any anybody who wants to try to test me on this, he's a medical doctor will be able to do so. Just ask around among your own patients. Now, what I had no idea that it would go out of the few. When it was published in 75, 
there was 19,000 copies was printed the first time. And I assumed that, you know, that if they sold that, you know, they'd end up in the hands of doctors and psychologists and that, you know, some of them would say, well, let me ask around my own patients. And I knew then if they did that, they would, but I was not expecting that. And, you know, I was in, in medical and in November of 1975, I was Raymond Moody, obscure medical student. And the book was published that month. Then two months later, January of 76, I got my MD. And then like a few weeks after I got my MD, a friend of mine was listening to his shortwave radio programs from over in Europe. And they were talking about my blog. And I just early, like mid-January. And so suddenly, you know, I went from Raymond Moody, uh, and in the program, they said, well, we know all this information must be correct because it's it's related to us by the eminent Dr. Raymond Moody. But why was I the eminent Dr. Raymond Moody? Because I'd related this information. But it just, it zoomed. I had no idea it was going to be like a, a worldwide sensation. I was hoping to awaken interest among a few Medical doctors was my object. Yeah. yeah. Well, because you had that alphabet soup after your name, you're a doctor, doctor. So, you you know, that gives you credibility right off the bat. And did you find that there was way more interest in non-medical people, doctors and, and you know, physicians and other medical providers? I think the nurses all know this stuff because they deal oh, with yeah. it all the time. See, as you, you've Pick that up to see, you know, when I was, uh, you know, going around to different medical schools and, and just lecturing to medical societies back in the early 70s, I mean, 76 and all, it's um, the doctors generally were not familiar with it. But when I'd go on the wards, the nurses, oh, yeah, you know, the, mm-hmm. and uh, that was the thing. But now, of course, doctors are waking up to it because it's just just so common. You've got to. Plus, there's so many great doctors who've had this themselves. Mm-hmm. And um, I don't know if you've heard the most amazing story, Julie, of uh, uh, Dr. Chikoria. Anthony Chikoria is a, um, number one, a PhD in physiology, but also an MD degree. And he's a professor of orthopedic surgery at NYU. And in 1994, Anthony was struck in the neck by a bolt of lightning and had a cardiac arrest on the spot. But a nurse happened to be right there and resuscitated. But he said he got out of his body. He he said, Raymond, he said, this is not a dream. He said, this is more real than what we're experiencing now. So he went all around this resort center where this family was having a reunion. And he got to see some of the, you know, the family members tell them what they were doing and all. And he kept insisting, like, this is, this is, all this is reality. This here is a dream. So anyway, then after Anthony, um, got, a, you know, recovered and all, un, he had never had any interest whatsoever in, in music, but suddenly he developed a, just a fascination with the piano. And he started hearing a recur- like having a recurrent dream in which he was playing the same piece of music 
on a piano on a concert stage. So he learned how to transcribe the mu music so he could transcribe the piece. He learned the piano, and now in addition to being an eminent, you know, professor of orthopedic surgeon, he's a concert pianist. He wow. did a concert not long ago in Vienna. And, oh you know, gosh. you and I, Julie, have been trained in a very rigorous fields and and have, you know, done a lot of thinking about a lot of different things. And And I would think that you would agree with me that what happened to Anthony Chikoria does is not accounted for within this consensual reality that we're in. That it is a series of events that stands outside of what people assume to be reality. And there's mm -hmm. even more. I mean, I just have this wonderful friend, Jeffrey Odris O'Driscoll, who's an ER. I've had him on the show. Yeah. I've had him on the show. And that's yeah. amazing. That while yeah. while Jeffrey Olson, who was a, a uh, owns a graphics firm, had a horrible car crash. His leg was smashed off. He had a being resuscitated. His wife was killed instantly in the car crash. One of his kids also, but I think one of the kids lived. And so Jeffrey uh, O'Driscoll, the ER doctor, came into this scene where Jeff was being resuscitated, Jeff Olson was being resuscitated, and saw and talked with Jeff Olson's dead wife. And so we see where I am on this. I give up. I just can't think my way out of this. You two probably have the same tendency of mind. You want to think of all the objections. See, it's what you learn in your professional training. Most people want to just hear the good stuff as to what they, but, but when you're trained like you and me, it's like you learn that you've got to think through and try to knock down everything. And I've been trying to knock down the hypothesis that there's an afterlife since 1960s, and I've given up. I, I can't think my way out of this. I really can't. So, I mean, I gather there really is an afterlife. Well, I always laugh and say you can't make this stuff up because Whoa, there's oh, too no, much wow. information that corroborates the information that we're receiving from spirit. <laughs> it's just like, you can say what you would, but there's no way that we would have known this stuff. And it's a, it's a great deal of effort has to be put into uh, maintaining the illusion that this thing we're in is real. Um, I had a great experience in you know, years 30, when I was 30 about, and I had, um, I, I was living in a little town and, and, you know, Birmingham is, is bigger than, you know, where I was living, but in, in any a small town, I've lived in, in a number of them. There has to be an arrangement made so that the chief of police or the mayor or the local town celebrities are always on TV nation. You know, they can't be expected to come to the front door of the mental health clinic like the rest of us peons. I mean, it just makes sense, right? And so some arrangement is always made to let's, you know, bring them in a different way. And so I'm, and who's going to do it this year? Well, you know, Raymond is the oldest resident because I've been the PhD route. And uh, also I was known in town from my books. Uh, so for a year, I sat there in this geriatrics clinic with these very distinguished and accomplished people. Some of them, you know, 
internationally known. And I heard repeatedly during that year, at least most of them were there for it was, I figured out quickly, it's loneliness, right? Wanted somebody to talk to or situational stress. But during that year, I heard this constant remark, Raymond, the older I get, the more I'm like, when I look back at my life, I have this weird feeling that it's been like a play or a script or a movie or a novel or a TV show or, you know, like they would use different words, but the idea that that this is somehow the movies. And this is a point of view about personal identity, I think, that naturally occurs to people as they grow older. What is your personal identity? Well, what we really have sort of inherited in the West from Plato ultimately is this idea that our personal identity consists of an immortal, immaterial soul and that the body is something that's kind of fluxing and unreal and that goes away, but the, the immortal soul persists. And uh, the trouble is, you know, what does that mean? Well, you know, I guess you could be burned at the stake <laughs> for many, you know, centuries for doubting that. But when things started loosening up in 1500s, Thomas Hobbes pointed out, well, that doesn't really make any sense. What are you talking about? It's unintelligible. And so, you know, well, what do we do? And then John Locke, who had a lot to do with the formation of our Constitution, got to thinking about it, and he said, well, our self consists of our memories and our consciousness. Then the great skeptic David Hume, 100 years later, said, you know what, when I look inside myself, all I see, ever see is the impressions of the moment. I don't see anything lasting or persistent. And so, like, you see, there's a lot of modern psychology says the self is just the illusion, right? Well, where I've come to it at age 79 is that I think this life is your story. What is your personal identity but your story? And consciousness itself is, is, narrate, is a narrator, is narrative and structure. Uh, the Kulikov effect, I think they call it, is cinematographers say, that if you take two random objects, like a pill bottle and a fork, and you present them to somebody in sequence, that the mind immediately starts drawing, weaving a story to connect the two objects. So that the point being that consciousness itself is narrative. It's you're, you're building a story. Whenever some new thing happens to you, what do you do? Your mind adds it to your continuing life story. So that's, yeah, that's where I've come to. I think that this is, uh, I, I was lecturing on this at a Hindu ashram one time. And I don't know anything about any religion, but, but um, the, the uh, Swami at the ashram told me, he said, yeah, that's what we figured out too, that this, they, they have a name for it, but this is that you go through these different experiences of narrative and for heading toward what we don't know, but that's the that's what I've come to because I can't think my way out of it. Most of us have busy lives, and 
We know that we're not getting the nutrients and the vitamins and the minerals that we need. So I'm always looking for easy ways to ingest them. I found one, it's called Beam Minerals. And what I find is that most of us don't get enough potassium, magnesium, and calcium. Those are the big three. And so what Beam Minerals does is it's put all these minerals in a liquid form that's easy to drink because it tastes like water. It's got all these important minerals and a whole bunch of other ones. And I find that they're really helpful. They save me time. They're easy to take. And I suggest that you give them a try. Go to Beam Minerals, B as in boy, E-A-M, minerals, plural, dot com, and use the code Julie Ryan, altogether, no space, at checkout, and you'll get 20% off your order. That's Beam Minerals, B-E-A-M, minerals.com and use Julie Ryan at checkout and you'll get a 20% discount. Give it a try and let me know what you think. Circling back to the classics, since you're such a fan of Plato, I find that it's throughout all of the religious texts and throughout Shakespeare, certainly. And I think in the Western world here, we're all getting ready to go into the Christmas season. And, you know, what's the most famous Dickens story of all is, is old Ebenezer Scrooge, and he's got the ghost of Christmas past, present, and future. So I find that that this stuff's been talked about in all the religious texts and all of the literature since the beginning of time. And again, I go back to as we've become more well-educated and more proof-based, we've kind of lost lost our way with it. But I believe that it resonates with everybody, especially little children. Have you interviewed any little children in your research? Not so much. No, I I avoided pediatrics. And I, my wonderful pediatrics professor, Bell, uh, Beverly Bell, when I was in medical school, I, you know, when I was going up to my pediatrics rotation, I went to the private hospital where all the kids were coming with sniffles and all like that. And then I didn't know why I thought it was just the luck of the draw. But then years later, <laughs> Beverly told me that she put me in the private hospital because she knew that I wouldn't be able to stand seeing little kids <laughs> in really terrible shape. So she, you know, kindly put me over and the, 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 this is more, you know, where people weren't as sick. But, you know, I was right. on the, the psychiatry, however, I went the other way. I was a forensic psychiatrist working in a maximum security unit with psychotic killers, mostly like the had a patient who ground his mother and father up in a meat grinder. I mean, you know. This, oh, heavens. Oh, yeah. Well, you know, yeah, he was a nice guy. <laughs> but, you know, he was pretty psychotic. <laughs> it's oh, real, my goodness. But. You know, it's like uh, that was a sign of life that I wanted to encounter. Yeah. And, yeah. Um, yeah. Well, I found that, that little children get this stuff and they know this stuff. And then yeah. it's taught out of them because their grownups in their lives say, oh, honey, that's just your imagination. That's not real. Yeah. But they remember past lives and they give us information that we can corroborate with historic documents. And this kid can't read yet. And so you think, how does that work? So I believe that all of this NDE stuff, even to the ones that want to debate 
whether it's real or not, it resonates with them. Yeah, well, that's why that's why there's some people who are so vociferously against it. You know, they doth protest too much, in my opinion. Yeah. Why do you think that is? Why is that? Because they're afraid? They're They're afraid? So many people who are afraid to say, I don't know. To me, it's the easiest thing to do. I think a lot of my my, uh, consciousness was set when I first looked through a telescope when I was seven or eight years old and immediately decided two things, that number one, uh, as much as I love to learn that I'm never going to know much of anything. And that was very humbling, you know, to realize about the vast dimensions and all. So I just grew up expecting that even though I'm very curious and want to learn as much as I can, that, I, you know, there's only that, you know, that really our our lot is kind of we don't know stuff. But I've known so many other people who are just the other way. If their professor got a PhD, they went, oh, yeah, I've got to have the answer to this. But, you know, it's so plain. They don't have any more idea than I do, but they have an assertion. It can't be. And, um, you know, I've known a lot of people who said it can't be and then later had these experiences themselves and took a different tone. Yeah. Why do you think people are finding their that they're curious about an afterlife and how does that relate to the fear from a psychiatrist standpoint from a you know from an emotional standpoint why are we all so afraid to die is it because of what we've been taught by religions and cultures about heaven and hell and you know that kind of stuff or yeah what do you think on that I've had a lot of people consult me over the years with that very, I'm afraid of death. And what I quickly found out in the, you know, dozens of years I've been doing this is that the first thing you have to ask people about is what aspect, what is it about that? And some people say, well, now here I will start with the category that includes me, all right? Pain. I don't want any pain, all right? And I've had a, Kidney stones, I've had a gallstones, I'm finished with pain, okay? So when I think of the possibility of having pain, uh, I mean, that's a terrible thing. So in that sense, I'm afraid of death. Other people. Because you think it's going to be painful? Well, not, I mean, I hope it's not. But, Mm -hmm. you know, that I'm I'm afraid. I mean, it, it is fearful that you might you know, have terrible pain. I mean, I don't want it to happen, but that's what scares me. But other mm-hmm. people have different fears. Uh, you know, there are a lot of people who would come in. I, it's in a common pattern, I like to say, uh, uh, well, you know, I, there's, no, there's no such thing as a life after death because then church, they scare me to death about hell. And I, I just want... You know, it's like the the fear of the fundamentalist religion or whatever that it turned them off on this idea and they relate it to hell. Then a lot of people, I'm here I, I am too. I don't want to be separated from my loved ones, right? Yeah, I mean, I got two wonderful grown kids are still living at home, thank God, 25 and 23. I, and my wife, I want to hang around for as long as I can for them. Um, and then there's a lot of other people who fear obliteration is some what some people fear. And then a lot of other people just fear the unknown. 
So different people have different aspects of death that they fear. Me, I don't want any pain, but I, you know, I'm not afraid of death. I might just, you know, to me, it's, um, I've talked to so many people who have the same experience that I anticipate. And again, this is very, still very counterintuitive to me. I mean, I've, I'm forced to say that I don't know any other thing to say except that to my utter astonishment, there seems to be an afterlife. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, that's very counterintuitive to me because I was, you know, my dad was number one, a surgeon, you know, some of those, <laughs> put that personality together with a professional military officer, plus a medic in World War II in the Pacific theater. And oh, wow. I didn't get this as a kid, but I remember when I was real little, he was hostile to religion. Yeah, I just never did think about it. But now I see, you know, that group didn't talk. He was probably just turned off against religion since, um, you know, what I, what he saw in the World War II, I gather. But, um, you know, for that reason, thank God that Dan had that attitude, see, because I'm glad. I mean, I'm from, I lived in Georgia. I'm glad I wasn't indoctrinated into all that silliness. <laughs> I don't think I would have been much on it anyway, but, you know, I mean, I didn't even have to deal with it because, you know, I didn't have, I wasn't exposed to it. First, it real exposure to religion I had was when these anonymous people started writing these hostile letters to me about, you know, you're going to hell and this is not what the Bible says. And, and there were, I always noticed they were always anonymous. A lot of them came to, you know, it's Jesus, 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 but we're not, you know, willing to put our name to this threat letter. Yeah. But anyway, that was my first attempt to religion. And, you know, Cheryl and I never took our kids to church because, you know, we're afraid of snakes. And that's just (laughs) that part of the joke. Oh, that's hysterical. Well, what he's talking about is there are there are churches that use snakes as part of their services. I've never seen well, it, but I've, I've heard about know, it. Listen, listen, I've read about that. It's a fascinating phenomenon. It yeah. is. No. Yeah. Goodness. Yeah, well, I, I, I don't even care to read about it because I don't want those it's visuals in my head. It's, it's so fascinating. If you're at all interested in social history and psychology, it's, it's fascinating. And how it works is if the snake bites you, you're a sinner. And if the snake doesn't bite you, you're pure. Yeah, is that the so. gist of it? I guess so. I think it's something like that. It's like a test of fate. Oh, my gosh. Wow. They drink right. one, too. What's that? It's another place. It comes from something that they said was put in the Bible later about if they handle snur- serpents and if you if you can take up serpents and that you can um, drink any deadly poison and it will not harm you. So to test their fate, they drink strychnine. Goodness. But it's fascinating. Yeah, I mean, I'm, this is mild to me being a forensic psychiatrist. This is, these people are still on the outside, you know, so. Along those lines and off the topic from a spiritual standpoint, or perhaps not off, off the spiritual uh, continuum, 
with your patients who were psychotic and were killers and were the scariest of the scary criminals out there, were they rehabilitatable? What did you find when you worked with them? Well, None of them were? No, this was, first of all, we were kind of the final resort. There were 12 uh, forensic units in the state, but the ours was the one where you'd send the unmanageables. So these were the people who had done these things like you read about in the National Enquirer. And, uh, you know, a man who chopped a bunch of people up with an axe or, you know, all these horrific things. But it was just fascinating. You know, we were talking earlier before we started this about, you know, being there. Uh, oh, no, we didn't talk about this, but in terms of being in Birmingham, I... um. I've always been a space nut, and um, I used to sit in the seventh grade. This was long before Sputnik and such, but I'd read Werner von Braun's books. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I'm a big fan. Yeah. Oh, me too. I met him twice. Oh, And what a tragic figure. He was so sweet. He had to do what he did because they told him he was going to kill his parents. Tell everybody, tell everybody a little bit about him, and I'll I'll embellish what you tell everybody. Yeah, Werner von Braun was this young man who was just a great young man who was in in the twenties. He learned about rockets, so he wanted to go to the moon. So they had this society; they were testing rockets to go to the moon. Then along came Hitler. You're drafted, right? So, but anyway, then he is after the World War II. He came to Huntsville, and he set up this uh, this laboratory there that eventually sent the Apollo people to the moon. And I had read his books, and beginning in 1952, this was long before even Sputnik. And I've always been a space nut. And in the seventh grade, I used to sit there all day imagining I would fly out to Mars or Venus or whatever. I'd, in the morning, I'd do the blast off. I'd go through all the stages, and I'd plan to be back on Earth by 3 o'clock and hoping the the the, um, the teacher wouldn't call on me, right? So then this was 1956, I guess. Flash forward to the 80s, and I was walking up the hill one day, to the maximum security unit for, unit for the criminal thing. And I had the thought, here I am, Raymond Moody. I'm the guy who used to sit in the class all day and dream about traveling to different planets. And I thought, I can visit 15 or 20 different planets today if I want to. And I really yeah. could. It was just like a privilege to be able to exists not just in another dimension, but in a lot of different dimensions. And we all thought it was such a privilege to work in that place. It was everybody thought we were crazy for wanting to do it, but it's it's like once you get hooked on homicide, you're hooked. I mean, it's like what what people and what interests people about homicide. I finally figured it out. I'm fascinated too. Number one is we've all thought of killing somebody, right? Number two is dramatic. But number three, the cognitive side is what gets me. And that that it's every homicide is unique and every one of them reflects one or more patterns. 
And so your your mind gets trapped. This this oh my God, every one of them is unique, and also it's it's reflective of a pattern. And it's like what the kind what, what kind pattern. of pattern? What are you talking about with a pattern? Yeah, well, homicides. It's like um, you know, it's like I'm, I had this opportunity one time there in Alabama. I was with one of the deputy sheriffs. It's just a coincidence, but that I was with him at that time, but he got called out on a murder. And so we went to this place and saw the scene. And I said, well, you know, just from my knowledge, this is a young person who lives nearby, probably 18 or 19. He, uh, um, he doesn't have a car, so he rides a bicycle or, or, or takes public transportation. And uh, he is low in the birth order. And he reads comic books and watches TV. Well, all of that stuff is just from the manuals. It's like you can go to a scene and you can more or less figure out what the person was like, you know, if the conditions are right. So that part of it is just really, a, you know, it's fascinating to me is the um, why in the world do people want to kill people is what I was mm -hmm. went into it for. And I got interested in the psychotic ones. Well, then, my family in that state was big into law enforcement. My uncle was the chief poli of police in this little town in Georgia for 30 years. The judge told me that when, when Fairley died, they had to hire three officers to take his place. So he was legendary, right? Plus, my, my brother was also very well known in law enforcement. And generally speaking, cops don't like psych psychiatrists. But in my case, the word spread among the law enforcement that, you know, Raymond R Moody, who's Randy's brother and Fairley's nephew, who's working over at Benyonville. So then I was in and I started going around the state testifying. Well, you testify on these cases of the crazy killers, right? Insanity. But then the judge would. You know, you get to know the judge, and the judge says, hey, Raymond, I got this old friend, 55 years old. I've known him all about my life. And, uh, you know, as the deacon of the church, the chairman of the, you know, whatever, the chamber of commerce, the, the owns this car dealership. It, through the football pass, I remember the homicide detective told me when they went in to arrest this guy, he had his picture on the wall from when he was, 17 or 18 and the football game where he played the made that pass you know that every and he had the football there but anyway this guy had hired his psychopath brother to do away with this inconvenient girlfriend so the judge is thinking well you know it's so out of character raymond you know is would you just you know maybe some so i would interview him but and that happened a lot you know that i would although my specialty was psychotic killers that the judges would just ask me to and so i quickly found and this is so odd you that paradoxically the the people who commit homicide who are in a what you call a sane state of consciousness are more bizarre than the ones with the you know the psychosis i mean because this thought process is so utterly off base and they all began with the first premise of their story is, I'm smarter than the cops. <laughs> That's what they all think. Because, you know, maybe the guy who stopped him on the road the other week, 
you know, maybe it works for him, but no, I mean, you know, if you come in a murder, you're dealing with people who are like, I mean, I knew a lot of them. It's more like college professors. We used to call them doctors with guns. And these are smart people. Mm-hmm. So you can't outthink them. But, you know, a lot of murderers just, you know, they think they can outthink the police. And, and so that's how they end up getting caught. Interesting. Circling back to Dr. Von Brown for a minute. I got a couple of quick stories for you and him. Wow. <laughs> This guy, everybody, was a rocket scientist for the Nazis. And that's what you were referring to earlier. Much to his horror. And after World War II, half of those rocket scientists came to America and the other half went to Russia after the war. So Dr. Von Braun ended up in Huntsville, Alabama, which is where the whole Apollo program after President Kennedy, what was that in about 63, 63 said, OK, we're going to be on the moon. 61, we're land 61, the I'm sorry. 61 before the end of the decade. So Dr. Von Brown did the whole NASA program there. I was lecturing Raymond at a business conference in Huntsville. And in the audience was the CEO of the um, NASA Space Center in Huntsville, Alabama, which is fabulous. Huntsville, by the way, I don't know if you know this, has more PhDs per capita than yes. any other city in the whole yeah. country. I know. Yeah. People people think those of us in Alabama don't have a full set of teeth sometimes, <laughs> but, but you know how that goes. So anyway, so uh, I met her at a reception afterwards and I said, oh, I'm a huge Dr. Von, Von Brown fan. Oh, and she said, she said, well, we're having a we have a special exhibit on him right now. Why don't you come over tomorrow morning on your way back to Birmingham? If you have time, stop in and I'll have my assistant take you around, which happened. And Raymond, two things came up. One was they took me into the archives and I got to see his private papers behind oh. that they made me put gloves on and everything. He and his wife were supposed to have dinner at the White House the night Kennedy was shot and killed. Oh, my goodness. And they were already in D.C. because they were going to come back. The Kennedys were going to come back from Dallas and then, you know, have dinner at the White House with them. But Jackie Kennedy wrote him a note and thanked him for his condolences. And I think they sent flowers or whatever. I got to hold the note on Jackie Kennedy's private stationery in the archives at the NASA Space <laughs> Museum in her backhanded, you know, school schoolgirl penmanship. And she was so gracious and saying, thank you so much for your condolences. I'm so sorry we didn't get to have dinner. Let's try and do it another time. And I'm thinking, oh, for God's sakes, this woman was so gracious that she was saying that to him. And I said to the the head of the archives, I said, why don't you guys have this displayed? And she said, it's priceless. We can't insure it. Yeah. So that's why they didn't have it displayed. That was story number one. The other thing that I learned was during the 60s with the spacemen and the, the flying saucer, you know, with the bubble top and all of that. You probably know this story, but for those of you that don't know it, he uh, somebody came to him and they said, you know, we're seeing these UFOs and we think they're from another planet. And he laughed. He said, no, they're not. They're surveillance 
aircraft. And, and I saw the plans for them when we were still in Germany. And one of my colleagues who immigrated to Russia took those plans with him. And those were Russia recon uh-huh. space, you know, aircraft that looked like flying saucers. He knew all about it. The guy was just brilliant. Oh, You're just beyond genius. Don't you think that all that information was being downloaded into his head from spirit? That he, I get goosebumps just saying that, that he, he was receiving, obviously it was brilliant, but I believe that he was receiving all this information because it was so out of the pocket of anything that had ever been done before. Ed Mitchell said that that Werner was very uh, fascinated by healing. But I have another friend who worked for him as an engineer and knew him well. And he said one time he asked Dr. Von Brown, it's like, do you think that there's anything to an afterlife? And and, uh, Dr. Von Brown said, no, absolutely not. And so my friend said, well, why not? And he said, because I'm an engineer and a scientist, he said. But um, he was just, uh, you know, and everybody in Hustle has a story about him, right? But our friend kind of grew up, they grew up with the kids, you know, and of the the Germans. And um, so the woman was telling us that her, her husband worked at the Space Center. She's an attorney herself, but the, her husband worked at the Space Center. So she said one day an announcement came over the intercom that anybody who has a penknife, if you would come up to Dr. Fun Brown's office. <laughs> so my my friend's husband went up with his penknife and he said when he went in there, Dr. Fun Brown, the, the front the front sole of his shoe had separated from the top. Flapping like that, so he got the nerve and just, <laughs> you know, cut off. But he was a character. I met him just briefly in, in March 26, 1958, when he came to Macon, because I'd read his book since 1952. And I talked to him because people were intimidated, you know, and I, I wanted to talk to him. Then um, six years later, he came back to Macon in 64. Then everybody wants to speak. Right. So yeah. I'm in the line trying to rehearse. And when I got up there, put my hand, he says, grab my hand. Ray McMoody, how are you doing? Six years. But, you know, Ed Mitchell said it is like that. He just he yeah. had the most amazing memory. I think he was one of the people that we would call. I don't know that a prophet from a religious standpoint, but certainly, certainly he he was of the of the whole space thing and exploration and the rockets. And I I believe, see what you think about this, that prophets come in a lot of different ways. Oh. They can be scientists, they can be physicians, they can be teachers, they can be religious figures, they can be sure. lots of things. But it's all, as I see it and see what you think about this, Raymond, is it's all divinely guided. Oh, I think so, absolutely. God is in charge, Julie, and and you know it, it, he really is. And um, so I agree with you. You don't have to be a religious figure to be a prophet, right? I agree. By the way, 
it seems like we may be far away from the afterlife, talking about trips to the stars. But, oh, ho, that's only because we live in 2023. If you go back not so far in history, the question, is there life after death? And the question, is there extraterrestrial life? Were the same question. It, it goes back even to the Pythagoreans, and in 1600, uh, Giordano Bruno was burned alive for his book, um, uh, The Infinite Universe and Worlds. This was 1600. He had written this book. See, the, Galileo was almost executed for saying that the sun was the center, right? But mm-hmm. Bruno was executed for saying there is no center. Because he had realized that all of those stars out there are like the sun and that they have planets around them, too. And this opened up this, um, you know, this vast universe. So then this was with Kant, for example, decided that, you know, the, the what we see is the Milky Way is the galaxy, right? We're looking through the flat disk. But then there were smudges back in the 1700s at the limits of the current telescopes. And they couldn't, you know, what was it? They call them the nebula. But Kant correctly projected. He said, well, those are other galaxies. And then when the resolution got big enough in the 20s, they could tell him that's right. And so he was right. And so, but once people begin to realize that, then, uh-oh, well, what are those other planets out there? What role? And so, you know, we got determined in terms of the Bible. So there was this guy named Chalmers in early 1800s who conjectured. He was a both an Episcopal priest and also an authority on astronomy, and he said that those other star, those other worlds out there, they are the abodes of our deceased ancestors. So in in Bruno the same way. See, Bruno said um, in his book that. Reincarnation takes place not just on the earth, but between the interstellar reaches as well. So the question of extraterrestrial life and the question of life after death are, have been connected until very recently in history. Well, I have a fun story for you on that. I had a guy call into my show. It was early on, Raymond. I I think we just did show 420 or something last week. And, oh, and this wow. was maybe maybe 31 and he called into my show and he said, I'm an engineer. Do I have any past lives in which I was an engineer that have contributed to this? And so I pulled up, I have this whole technique that I used to do past lives. It's very quick. It's really fun. But I got that he had a past life and it looked like something off of a Star Wars set. And I thought, oh my gosh, this is a future life. This isn't a past life. But then when I asked what the year was, I got it was 1931. And he was in charge of the electrical grid. He was, uh, it looked like the Jetsons flying vehicles and, you know, like a Star Wars set. And so I asked him, I said, what kind of engineer are you? And he said, I'm an electrical engineer. I build jet engines for GE. I thought, well, there you go. And I'll see a semblance of a script that will repeat throughout multiple lifetimes. And we're looking at the same script from different perspectives, different time, different situation, different gender, different set of circumstances, same basic script. And I think that's what we're seeing 
throughout all of history in all of the texts, whether they be classics or religious texts or whatever, it's still those same scripts that we're seeing repeated and we're looking at it from a different perspective yeah, now. That makes- what do you think about that? Does that make sense to you? You know, I'm really wrestling with that right now. It's like, what is personal identity? And I've gotten it down to what I think your personal identity is your story, right? Well, yeah. the, great, the great skeptic who, you know, admitted, like Einstein said that Hume affected, you know, is Einstein's thinking. And David Hume, 1711 to 1776, friend of Ben Franklin's, the great skeptic, and he wrote about the afterlife that he said, uh, by the mere light of reason, it seems difficult to prove the immortality of the soul. Some new species of logic is requisite for that purpose and some new faculties of the mind that they may enable us to comprehend that logic. Well, what he was being there was ironical, right? What he was saying is it can't be. You know, there's just, it's illogical to say that there's an afterlife. However, he did say, he said, um, to me, the only rational, the only kind of view of an afterlife that a rational person could entertain would be the reincarnation. And he doesn't say why he thought that. But I surmise that, you know, he was a historian and historians understand the necessity of narrative, Right. And I think that if you think about it, the most story like form of the afterlife is reincarnation. Right. The idea is you Mm -hmm. live through one story, then you go through an incomprehensible process, then you're back on another storyline. So I kind of think that's what he had in mind. And it certainly jives with me because both of my adopted kids, both of them adopted at birth. Carter is Mexican-American by heritage, adopted from um Texas at the moment of this birth. Carol Ann is Native American Blackfeet from Montana, again adopted at birth. But, and, but, and, you know, we didn't take them to church, but both of them recalled where they were before they came to us, like that they came to us from the other world was what they were saying. And I, you know, I, but they, they anchored it in some way that I couldn't deny that there was what they were saying is true. It's like, Carter, when he was five, we were we were watching TV, and I was flipping through the channels. I flipped through what turned out to be the National Geographic channel, but when he got he got very animated, Dad, Dad, that's my village, huh? Went back. It was a it was a National Geographic uh, documentary on village life in China, and so Carter just said, "Yeah, yeah," he said, "You remember?" He said. Like before I came to you and mommy, I was with my other mommy and daddy in China, my brothers and sisters, and I, and what you know, I was comprehending. And then, Julie, as though to orient me, because he could tell I was confused, and then he said, "Yeah," he said. And then I was up in the trees, looking at you and mommy lying down in the grass, and I knew exactly what he was talking about. Because my wife and I were in Greece at this archaeological site way out of the middle of nowhere. It was not one of the ones on the, just way out. And um, and so um, they, uh, we had been off the plane, yes, the day before. And so the attendant there, we were the only people there. 
and he could tell we were exhausted. So he just said, go over there and lie down in the grass and take a nap. And there were these big trees all around. And we were talking about adopting a baby. Well, I have one for you. And share this with your wife, please. I can see baby's spirits attached to the mom's energy field before they incarnate. And they look like little orbs. They look like Glenda the Good Witch, the orb she flies into Munchkin Land inside in the Wizard of Oz. And they uh, they attach to the adopted mom's energy field before they're conceived. So they choose the birth mom and they choose the adopted mom. I've seen it many, 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 many times over the years. And when somebody is dying, the maternal spirit who's closest to them, like if the mother's deceased, it will be her. If the mother's still alive, it'll be the maternal grandmother, always on the maternal line, back to my 12 phases of transition. The birth mother is there, but it's the adopted mother that's running the show from the spirit world. So please share that with your wife. The first time I saw that, I thought, oh my goodness, how fabulous is this? The adopted babies spirits attached to the mom's energy field. So there's some so there's some validation for you on that yeah, too. And, and Charlottesville in the spring of 81 or 82, I had two sons and, and I'd always wanted a daughter. Love my sons, but you didn't know what you were coming, what was coming then, right? But I'd always been hoping for a daughter. My wife had preeclampsia, not wise to have her again, you know, having another pregnancy. So this E, I don't know where it came from, but it was very heartfelt. Wouldn't it be wonderful to adopt a Native American daughter? I just, I have no idea where it came from. It was very deep. But I didn't even set it up as a prayer. Nineteen years later, it came to pass without me doing anything to bring it around. Wow. Wow. I love that. Basically, what happened was that in 1996, I was given a lecture out in New Mexico. And I was waiting in the audience for my lecture, which was next. The previous lecturer was at the podium. He called for questions, but the questions, you had to get up and go around the the center aisle to a microphone, right? Which is okay for Anglos, but not for natives. And that's not their style. So Cheryl, my wife, was sitting to my left, but the on the right was sitting this native woman, and she was, from her body language, you could tell she wanted to ask a question, but that's just not. So Cheryl just kind of punched me. I, I just naturally picked up this woman whose name, Christine, isn't what her name turned out to be, but I gathered around, and I stood there with the microphone. I let her ask her question. Hey, that was 1996. Then we, uh, we adopted Carter in 1998. So in 2000, August of 2000, I pick up the phone. It's Christine. How are you doing? Oh, we're doing great. We just, we adopted a baby. Oh, I wish so much I had known you were looking. And I work on the hospital and the reservation. And I'm the first one in the hospital to know when we need an adoptive parent. By all means, I said, a couple of months later. She called back, your daughter is on her way. And I mean, I, that's how it happened. So, you know, yeah. and, and yeah. I tell you, having a Native American daughter, when she was, she learned how to read. We don't know how before she 
went to school, but she started reading all these books on Pocahontas. One day she looked at me and Cheryl just like, were your people English? And, uh, <laughs> but when she would get angry at us as a teenager, you know, she, oh, I'm just going to go back and live on my reservation. <laughs> but she's a real character. She, she made a big hit there in Anniston, as you can imagine. I bet. Well, and how wonderful that you got that inspiration. You knew that it was something that you wanted, and then you left it up to God, the universe, source, whatever you want to call it, to make all of those stars align so that you could get your That's baby right. girl. It's, you know, I yeah. had nothing to do with it. That was God's work. Yeah, absolutely. One last question. Mm-hmm. Why do you think we incarnate? There you, I give up, Julie. I don't know, but I'll tell you this. I've had a lot of thoughts about it. And what I want to know is, Less of some, which I do, I mean, I give up. I think there is reincarnation, okay? But, and so what that means is that we live multiple different stories, as it were, right? Mm-hmm. Now, what I want to know is, you know, in high school, you read, I read um, the Canterbury Tales, right? And I also read Boccaccio's Decameron, but it, which was another one like this, but in the De- Canterbury Tales, you remember, it's the, the overstory is the story of the pilgrims walking along to Canterbury. But to pass the time, they tell each other stories and the Miller's Tale and the Baker's Tale and all. So the, the story of the pilgrims going along to Canterbury is a device for telling these stories that make up the Canterbury Tales. The Decameron is the same. People are isolated at during a plague and they're telling each other stories in this manner to pass the time or Ray Bradbury's illustrated man where the stories are portrayed on the tattoos of a hobo but you know what that's called is a frame narrative now what I want to know is there's some kind of frame narrative over these individual stories that we live some or is that the what connects all those those narratives we live, is that something other than a story? See, and my answer is, I don't know. But as I don't know the answer to your question, why do we incarnate? If I had to guess, I'd say to to learn and to be entertained. Exactly. And to learn how to love. Create, Create a life of joy and love. Yeah, that's kind of what I get on it, too. And stories are in every culture. My goodness, you're talking about that. And I'm thinking, what about the slaves? The slaves, that's how how they got them on the Underground Railroad was through stories and songs and, you know, and all of that to get them to freedom in the North. And For about 10 every, years. Every, everybody, every, every culture, every civilization has stories. The Bible is what... Uh, an amalgamation of a bunch of stories. That's right. Yeah. And uh, yeah. I just, I have been about 10 years, I've been asking people in audiences the same question. I say this, I say, let's assume that you were diagnosed with horrific infection that required for you to be um, isolated on a desert island all by yourself for, let's say, 10 years. 
and they can send you out there on a cargo plane with all the food and water and medicine you're going to need for 10 years. But there's extra room in the cargo hole where they can include, say, a DVD player and, let's say, 7,000 DVDs. And what I ask people is, would you choose all comedies? And only three people has only said, yeah. Everybody else said, no, of course not. He said, well, would you take some tragedies? too? well, sure. You know, well... When you were all alone on that desert island watching that tragedy, would you feel, would you be crying? Well, sure you would, because that's what you do with the tragedy. So to me, see, it's like, I think that, you know, why if we choose these lives, why would we choose ones that are hard? Well, I think I'd go back to that analogy. If I knew that I had 10,000 lives to lead, I would choose some with all kinds of wild things. I mean, you... You don't want to just, it's like I would choose to be in a plague or in a catastrophes. I mean, just so you'd have the experience, right? It, but you would choose it knowing that you would make it through alive. But then once you get here, Plato said that before you come in here, you go through a, an event boundary. And what that means is it's an event boundary in psychology is the experience you have when you um, you um, are in your living room and you want to go into the kitchen to fetch something. But as soon as you go through the kitchen door, you forget what you came in there for, right? It's that That's a, uh, an event boundary. And Plato said that's how it is, that he said just before you come in here, they show you this flat screen with, he said not the lies, but he said the patterns of lies that you could mm-hmm. choose from. Not, I think that was so interesting. He said the patterns of lives from which you could choose. But then, see, once you get here, you, as soon as you're here, you just, whoops, you forget. So then you forget. might choose something very painful when you, you know, are choosing it. But then when you're in it, you sure do wish you hadn't chosen it, right? You've got to think of the, the ultimate picture, the big picture of your life development, I think. Well, and you talk to any actor who's some of the best actors ever in the history of of acting, they will tell you their most favorite parts, their most favorite roles were the ones of the bad guys because they're so interesting to your point earlier about wanting to work with criminals. Well, this show's gonna air on on Thanksgiving. Oh and how wonderful. on behalf of on behalf of the world, thank you for the work that you've done, for sharing your wisdom, for really opening us up in this day and age to knowing that there's more than meets the eye as far as spirituality goes. And you're such an inspiration and so wise and and what a joy to get to talk with you. That goes right back to you too, Judy. Goes right back to you and, and to all the folks listening in. Thank you so much for you know, for this opportunity to talk with you. You bet. All right, everybody, sending you lots of love from Sweet Home, Alabama, Mwah! and from Florida, too, where Dr. Moody is now. Happy Thanksgiving. I hope you have a wonderful holiday and weekend, and we'll see you next time. Thanks for joining us. Be sure to follow Julie on Instagram and YouTube at Ask Julie Ryan. 
and like her on Facebook at Ask Julie Ryan. To schedule an appointment or submit a question, please visit AskJulieRyan.com. This show is for informational purposes only. It is not intended to be medical, psychological, financial, or legal advice. Please contact a licensed professional. The Ask Julie Ryan Show, Julie Ryan and all parties involved in producing, recording, and distributing it assume no responsibility for listeners' actions based on any information heard on this or any Ask Julie Ryan shows or podcasts.